Hello, and welcome to the Celebrating Women in Psychedelics podcast, where we shine a spotlight on the important work being done by women in psychedelics. I am your host, Sonia Stringer, and I'll be introducing you to women leading psychedelic businesses, women shaping governance and policy, female therapists and doctors, indigenous leaders, researchers, practitioners, women leading nonprofits, and others who are making very important contributions to the psychedelic renaissance. Through our podcast and online community, we're committed to ensuring women have a strong voice in shaping the future of psychedelics, and we're very excited to have you on this journey with us. For centuries, women have made huge contributions and shaped the advancement of psychedelics and plant medicines around the world. Even so, many of these important women are not well known and in some cases don't want to be known. My guest today is the perfect person to share about the role of women in psychedelics and plant medicines. She's invested many years studying and writing about some of the lesser known history related to psychedelics in Canada, the United States, and globally. In today's show, she shares some fascinating details about the history of psychedelics in Canada, including women's roles and how the use of LSD in an asylum led to promising research showing the effectiveness of LSD-based therapy in the treatment of alcoholism. My guest has also had the very unique opportunity to interview the wives and partners of very prominent men in the psychedelic space and shares what she learned from these women who have made quiet but very significant contributions to psychedelic research. You'll learn why some women have not been acknowledged for their contributions to the psychedelic renaissance, and in some cases, why they purposefully hid their roles and influence from the public eye. And we're also going to explore the history of psychedelics from a global perspective, including the involvement of women in the harvesting of ergot to help with LSD production in the earlier days of Sandoz Labs in Switzerland. No doubt by the end of this interview, you will have an even greater appreciation for the ways in which women have influenced and hopefully will continue to influence the use of psychedelics and plant medicines around the world. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Celebrating Women in Psychedelics. I am your host, Sonia Stringer, and the title of today's episode is The Unknown but Critically Important Roles and Contributions of Women in the Psychedelic Space. This is a juicy topic, and my guest today is the absolute perfect person to feature. I'm really excited to introduce you to Dr. Erica Dick. No doubt many of you already know of Erica. If you don't, put her at the top of your must-know-and-follow list of people in the psychedelic space for many, many reasons. She is a professor of history and Canada Research Chair in the History of Medicine at the University of Saskatchewan. While earning her doctoral degree, she was convinced by Dr. Larry Stewart to research the history of therapeutic experimentation with drugs in Canada. Upon discovering an asylum in Weyburn, Saskatchewan, which had become ground zero for international LSD research, she chose to conduct her thesis on this topic. In 2005, she published The History of LSD, including its rise and decline from medical research in an article in the Canadian Journal of Psychiatry. 
She then published a book on the topic titled Psychedelic Psychiatry, LSD on the Canadian Prairies through the University of Manitoba Press. And she's gone on to write numerous additional articles and books related to psychedelics. She's a featured and beloved speaker and lecturer at various psychedelic events and conferences. And Eric, I was thinking when we first connected, I believe I was co-facilitating a program on psychedelic assisted therapy. You were one of the featured speakers during that program, and you presented a very intriguing session on the history of psychedelics in Canada, something I knew nothing about. I think a lot of people know nothing about. It was one of the most interesting things I ever learned about this. And you're not only extremely knowledgeable about Canada's role in the psychedelic world, but also the history of psychedelics globally and the contributions of women in the space, which we're going to dive into a little deeper here today. And I think one of the things I love most about you, you are one of those people that was interested in psychedelics, the history, the use, the applications long before it became trendy and cool. So I'm really especially honored here to have you as a guest today. Thanks so much for being here and welcome to the show. Thank you for that incredible introduction and I hope I live up to it. (laughs) No doubt. Well, we're going to talk a lot more about the contributions of women in psychedelics during this interview. But first, you are a woman, obviously, working in the psychedelic space. And although you're quite well known in certain circles, I know some people aren't as familiar with your work. Would you mind just sharing a little bit more about your origin story and what led you into the study of psychedelics and the work that you're doing currently? Yeah, thank you. You know, in some ways, it's sort of by accident. But as you mentioned, I was interested in medical experimentation and the history of science and these questions and where they intersect with politics and how people make decisions about what kinds of medicines are considered valuable and which are, in this case, considered criminal. And I started working on that in the early 2000s. In fact, even probably a little bit in the 20th century, you know, in the late 1990s, I was asking some of these questions and the conversation was so different. I had the real privilege to meet a number of people working in this space, like Humphrey Osmond, who coined the word psychedelic, Timothy Leary, who probably needs no introduction, Abe Hoffer, who was one of the Saskatchewan researchers, you know, some really incredible people who were sort of pioneers in this field, at least in the 1950s. And even there, you know, the questions were, do you have ethics? Can you talk to people who took a lot of psychedelics? Will they be compromised? And it's interesting now to think about how much that conversation has changed and what questions have opened up such that now I can talk to a whole variety of people who have a familiarity with psychedelics and we can start to ask different questions and probe different ways that we understand this past. It's almost unfair to ask you this question because I know it's a huge topic and you can literally do a 90 minute or 120 minute presentation on it. But for people that don't know much about Humphrey Osmond or his role in psychedelic research here in Canada, would you mind sharing just a two minute overview of the history of that and how it's so relevant to what's going on today? Yeah, Humphrey Osmond was in many respects a kind of classically trained psychiatrist in the 1940s and 50s. And he answered an ad in The Lancet that was placed there by Saskatchewan's premier and health minister, Tommy Douglas. And so for Canadians, you know, we know him as one of the guys who brought us Medicare. And Saskatchewan had recently elected the Cooperative Commonwealth Federation and launched this kind of Medicare campaign or project. So Humphrey Osmond was brought to Saskatchewan as part of a political experiment to introduce publicly funded health care and psychiatry and mental health services were folded into that project. So Osmond arrived just outside of London, where he had been working while his wife almost never forgave him, I think 
thank for bringing him to the windswept place of Weyburn, which was a tiny little town in the prairies, you know, not close to really any cosmopolitan influences. And I've since learned from a number of other women who lived with them in Weyburn, that is, that she had these beautiful coats and fashions and shoes and that she was very generous with them. These became prized possessions of her friends. But this is quite a big move. And what's interesting is that Osmond felt that this place allowed him to have the kind of research freedom and support from the government and from his colleagues and even his wife and her friends to create a kind of incubator for the kind of research that required unorthodox thinking or thinking outside the box, if you will. And so this kind of concentrated some of the research that he was interested in with respect to psychosis and hallucinations and hallucinogens or hallucinogen causing drugs like LSD, mescaline and psilocybin. And this created a bit of an incubated space for that research to really flourish. And in some ways, I speculate, the because Saskatchewan was not a destination on most people's maps, it allowed for that research to actually sort of hunker down and, and was sustained a little bit longer than it might have been had it been in a more competitive space. Wow, it's so fascinating. If memory serves, he led perhaps the first study on the effects of psychedelic assisted therapy, LSD in particular, with alcoholism, substance abuse disorder. And I believe they had a fair amount of success. Did he not attract attention, I think, from Bill W. and AA because they were actually seeing some pretty significant results with people going through their program? Yeah, initially, Osmond and and his colleagues, people like Gabe Hoffer and Duncan Blue, psychiatrists and psychologists, respectively, believed that this might actually, LSD, for example, or D-lysergic acid diethylamide, which was kind of newly available in the 1940s, it might create a model psychosis, a way that you could understand psychosis in ways that, if you imagine dealing with what he described as about 70% of the patients who were then living in the asylum or the major mental hospital, had real difficulty communicating. Sometimes they were hearing voices, they were responding to things that, you know, we couldn't see. And rather than, you know, criminalize that or pathologize that or see that as something untouchable, what he thought is that staff, including psychiatrists, could have this experience that would help them to appreciate what it was like to be challenged in their capacity to communicate and to really engage or empathize with people. So it's a staff training tool at first, but within the first few months of using this among staff, they recognized this, that maybe this was similar to something they'd heard from alcoholic patients. And that is sort of hitting rock bottom or the place at which people are willing to accept help. And so they tried to use at first rather large doses to sort of break through or interrupt those patterns of thinking such that they could help people trigger a response that might allow them to seek help. And it didn't really work that way. They found that people had therapeutic benefits from the sort of interruption itself. It wasn't just that jolt. And it started to attract attention from other researchers and 12-step therapy promoters like Bill W. from Alcoholics Anonymous. Now, AA is especially interested in an abstinence model, and they're particularly interested in defining themselves as a non-medical intervention. So there's a bit of controversy here as to how much AA could openly endorse a psychedelic interruption therapy or psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy is what we call it today. But there were quiet supporters, including Bill W., who himself had an LSD experience and agreed that there were spiritual effects that one could experience using LSD or masculine or psilocybin that were much more aligned with the 12-step model model than what they could have imagined with other kind of mainstream medicines. And so you begin to see this kind of blurring of the lines, the spiritual angle comes in, but also that 12-step model. And I'll just say one more thing. I could talk all day about these things, but I think one of the great successes of the psychedelic assisted therapies for addiction, in this case, alcoholism, was that partnership with AA. Because once people had gone through that therapy session and joined the kind of brotherhood, and this was really talking about men here, they were much more likely to continue with the program and stay the course. 
So many of the success stories are people who had a single dose of a psychedelic followed by up to two years and often longer follow up with AA. And that combination was really what I think helped to reach the success rates that they claimed, some of which were up to 90%. Wow. Unbelievable. Yeah. It's so interesting to see the pairing of that particular substance with therapy, with ongoing group support, being part of a supportive community. And thank you for sharing that. I know it's, like I said, very unfair to even ask you to try to summarize a lot of what you know about the history of Canada. But I have to say, when I heard your presentation, I mean, I was just so intrigued with so much of those early trials and work that people aren't really that familiar with. I not only resonated with that as a proud Canadian, but it just goes to show like there's so much work related to psychedelics globally that people don't know. So for those of you listening, if you ever get a chance to hear Erica do her full-blown presentation on the history of psychedelics in Canada, I highly recommend it. And I know you've got a lot more insight about the global impact in the history too. We'll talk about that in just a moment here. But first, I want to go to this work that you're doing currently that's really profiling the role of women in the psychedelic space. I know there's a book called Women in Psychedelics, Uncovering Invisible Voices, the first edition of that was published in Spanish. And I believe you're the editor on the English version that's coming out very soon. And I just want to read this quick summary before we talk about it. This collection, the book, taps into women's networks around the world and throughout the 20th century to reveal some of the sophisticated and creative ways that women have influenced our understanding of psychedelics and how they continue to protect these stories as we face a psychedelic future. So would you share a little bit more about the project and why you feel it's especially important to spotlight not just the work of women, but the work of women who are not very well known in the psychedelic world today? Thank you for that question. You know, when I first started working on this, I followed the men's stories and, uh, you know, some of it was also what was available. I mean, you go to the library, even in the digital age, you follow some of these stories and there's some larger than life characters. And many of them are men whose stories kind of fill the pages and you can kind of chain them together in these history books and you can start to paint a picture of how psychedelics moved and, you know, who was a kind of avatar for this psychedelic movement. As I went around in my 20s and early 30s interviewing these men whose names were on scientific papers or in the history books, Sometimes I sat in the kitchen with their wives, you know, over a cup of tea, preparing for getting the camera set up or getting the interview ready. And we were chatting off camera. And it was clear to me that in most cases, these wives had also been present. Sometimes daughters were present. It's not just women, but often this is what was happening sort of off camera. And it got me thinking about, you know, all of the different things that women were doing sort of off camera, if you will, even in the metaphorical sense. But they were also the main confidants of these men who were engaged in what at the time seemed like rather bizarre experiments, experiments that took them out of their own minds. And these were the women who were grounding them back into themselves. They were the people who were helping to integrate those experiences with brave pioneering men to take nothing away from that. But these women were doing a lot of work. Many of them took psychedelics alongside their husbands in an effort to support their careers and to help ground these experiences. And so that's just a simple kind of lightning bolt or light bulb that went off. And I thought, huh, I need to talk to these women. And that spread. And of course, these are not uniform experiences, neither the you know psychedelic experience itself, nor the ways in which wives and daughters and nurses and support staff and executive assistants and secretaries and all of these lab assistants, and many of them women, participated in sort of holding space for some of these psychedelic experiments, especially in the early days when you know they're still trying to determine what's safe, what's a good dose, how do I do this? Should I be alone? Should I drink tea? Should 
I listen to Beethoven? Should, nope, should be Bach today? Many of these kind of micro decisions that were made on the fly and that we sometimes now recognize as really critical, like having a playlist or having a bathroom close by or having natural light in the room. Little decisions, many of which were contributed to by people who were literally just trying to help to secure that space. And a lot of those were women. So this, again, sort of led me on threads of discovery as I looked at the music therapists who were eventually named in the project, in many projects. But the precursor to that were a lot of women whose husbands were participating in the trials and looking at the ways in which some of these women made really serious contributions to how to set up a playlist or what kind of imagery to include in the trial. And it got me going. <laughs> wow. It's so fascinating. I didn't even think that. But of course, what an important role to play that of the partner supporting someone who is doing at that time pretty risky work, even just going through the experience of testing and experiencing, you know, a psychedelic substance on your own, having your partner participate in that with you, or at least to be the grounding person in the room as people are doing research and, and having those personal experiences. That's a huge contribution. It's interesting what you said there, though, historically and even currently, men do tend to play bigger roles in the space or at least be acknowledged for their contributions more than women. I'm just curious for your viewpoint there. Why do you think that is? Is it that women perhaps aren't as effective at promoting ourselves? Are we maybe not as interested in receiving acknowledgement? Are there other factors at play? Why do you think women tend to be a little bit more anonymous when it comes to psychedelic work, at least historically? Yeah, I think there's a lot of different factors there. And certainly I can't say that all women behave in this way or all men behave in that way. Certainly not. But in this particular space, it seems to be a really interesting dynamic of there's a lot of talk of ego dissolution. And yet by the same token, there are a lot of big egos in this space. And thinking about how people organize or present themselves to really push an idea forward requires a kind of investment in ego, just to use that kind of language. And some might even go further and just say, you need to be a little bit of a narcissist to put yourself out there to swim upstream, if you will. And it's a conversation that has opened up a lot of different perspectives. I find when I sit around either individually or with a group of women, you know, how did you live with some of these loud voices? I'll use my polite words. And <laughs> there's a variety of responses of, you know, women who felt overshadowed sometimes by husbands or partners who were really eager to have their name associated with a particular idea or set of ideas or even a particular substance. And I think there were elements of resentment. I'm thinking historically here. So when I talk to people about thinking about the past, as opposed to thinking about right now. And others were a little bit more circumspect and said they didn't want to have their names associated with the spotlight. Or there were other people who wanted to be in the spotlight, but actually things might go off the rails and we're going to need a whole network of people who can kind of keep things calm down or make sure we know where their sources are coming from or make sure we know how to take care of things if we get into trouble. And you don't want everyone to be known if you need to be discreet. And so that element of discretion struck me as something that was a kind of a powerful way of seeing women in this space that was not just shrinking away from the spotlight or, you know, letting the patriarchy take over and women are just pushed aside, which isn't to say that didn't happen as well. But there's a more powerful narrative here as a powerful interpretation of the way that women astutely recognized a dynamic landscape that required a variety of different ego investments or individual investments and in how to safeguard this wisdom, these substances and the people using them. 
So interesting. And I think you and I share the same view there. If you look at the emerging psychedelic renaissance and this sort of medicalization model that's coming out, that yes, it does require perhaps a more aggressive or even, as you said, narcissistic personality to be able to really innovate and lead in that space. There's a place for those people. And generally that is typically more male energy. It doesn't necessarily have to be a man, but you know, I think that's perhaps why a lot of men are leading the way in terms of how this new model is emerging and potentially going to be commercialized. But certainly that doesn't take anything away from feminine energy or the influence of feminine energy in the space to balance that out and how important that is. Does that resonate with you at all? Absolutely. I know we're speaking in kind of binary terms here as well, you know, not to lock those into place. But yeah, I think that kind of energy, like shifting it to that energy model really helps. There's so much history with psychedelics, not just the word psychedelic, but sacred plants, plant teachers, hallucinogen causing. We know that for millennia, people have been using and coveting and protecting these kinds of experiences and substances. And if we move it outside of the kind of frenzied, urgent moments that I think sometimes it feels like we're in, like we have to figure this out exactly today. We just sort of take a breath and think about the many different kinds of energy that have been required to explore and protect these experiences. I think it opens up to see a whole variety of ways that feminine energy has been really crucial to this longer history. And to me, it seems like it's just the most incredible opportunity for massive integration, an integration of the more traditional and indigenous ways, ceremonial ways that psychedelics have been used with this emerging medical model. It's an integration of masculine and feminine roles and energies. It's all important. And I think if people can really hold the potential of that, what we will ideally create through all of that will be a pretty robust and hopefully very helpful application of this work. And it doesn't necessarily have to be one or the other, which I think is easy for some people to buy into. People get a little divisive in the space. My hope is it's just this opportunity for integration on all levels and that ideally that's going to be really useful for everybody. And I know through the interviews you did, you had a chance to get up close and personal with some of the women that you mentioned, the partners or the spouses of people that are very well known in this space. Through those interviews, those conversations, what did you learn specifically from those women? Did they see themselves as playing kind of a secondary role or did they feel that they contributed equally through their partner's research? What were those conversations like? Yeah, again, there's always going to be a mix here. And there's so many amazing women, even just thinking historically, but also in the contemporary space. There are certain women who kind of spring to mind. You can't uncouple them from this space, nor from their own partners. We think about like Anne Shulgin. I mean, Sasha Shulgin might not be Sasha Shulgin without Anne Shulgin. And we think of them together. That's reflected in the work that they've done, the work that's published. The sort of public record about them really sees them as this incredible dynamic and a kind of reciprocal partnership. They brought different skills to this venture. I mean, Anne Shulgin is a kind of godmother in this space. And yet when you think about other examples like Terence McKenna and Kat Harrison, you know, you don't see that same kind of representation historically or in the public record. And yet learning from Kat about her place in that world, she played a really particular role in distributing cultivation guides, in illustrating cultivation guides in ways that were really risky. This is not a place 
place to put your name up front. This was a place to kind of keep your identity secret or discreet in an effort to further a cause that was very different from the role that Anne and Sasha were able to play at that time. And so here you've got this incredible woman with deep connections through an ethnobotanical world, through the Mazatec community, and all of that needed to be kept front and center, but discreet. And so she played a really different role in fostering these women's networks and connecting to plant and policy and Terence McKenna's launching career, <laughs> but did it in a really different way. And so these different examples, even though they live relatively close by from my Canadian perspective, they give us different models for thinking about different ways that women have made enormous contributions, but sometimes they're not represented in the same way in the library. If we go to the library to look for those examples. Mm-hmm. So I hope that the work that we can do now to recognize some of these more diverse ways that women have participated, we can begin to sort of remember and hopefully build stronger connections going forward, recognizing the kind of invisible work that goes on behind the scenes. Wow, some really interesting points there, Erica. And to that point about the safety issue, isn't it true that historically, in some cases at least, psychedelics or more specifically plant medicines were used for fertility control? So I can imagine there would have been instances where the use of plant medicines would have required women to be very private or discreet just in order to protect their own safety. Do you have any specific examples of that? Yeah, you know, it's so fascinating. There are so many good and yet challenging records suggesting women's knowledge of plants and herbs for a variety of healing mechanisms. And we can think back through archaeological evidence and anthropological evidence and see this in Indigenous communities. You can see this all around the world. Women's healing knowledge is also highly political. It is sacred in many respects, but it also has been moralized. It has been the subject of scorn and ridicule and real criminality. I mean, whether through religious orders or policy orders. There are a couple of great books looking at the Spanish and Mexican inquisitions in Latin America, where women with this knowledge of how to use plants to control fertility and for a variety of other things are seen as you know fighting against or not falling into line with the colonial medicine or colonial dictates, colonial morals even. And resistance to those kinds of moral codes was seen as against the state and therefore, of course, subject to legal repercussions. So the ways in which women have been implicated in plant knowledge systems, there's really good reason why they may not want to share their secrets, or they may want to keep this secret. There are also, as we know, real implications for unwanted fertility. And this brings up a whole other set of issues that continue to ricochet through our modern landscape about women's control of fertility. And although psychedelic plants aren't necessarily the sort of focal point there, there are plants that were later recognized as having ergot, for example was used both in controlling fertility and is the sort of base of LSD. And so there are the intersecting moments where it's unclear whether it's all plant knowledge that is being coveted and protected, but certainly psychedelics fit into that larger landscape. So interesting. You mentioned too that you're working on a book focused on the global history of psychedelics. I'm curious, what inspired you to write that book and what are things you're learning there? I am an editor on this book. I'm really pleased to be an editor on it. As a Canadian historian, I'm interested in the Canadian story. But what my colleague and I found was like, could we read one more book about, you know, the sort of rise and fall of psychedelics in North America, mostly focusing on Canada and the United States. And so we sort of challenged the Twitterverse. We put out a call on Twitter and we put it out in a few different places, just saying, let's try to crack this thing open and see who would like to contribute to a global history of psychedelics that decenters the United States and Canada from these stories. 
stories. So can we write a history of psychedelics without Timothy Leary? We failed. We, Timothy Leary does appear in the, in the book, but not a lot. And what we found, we set out the call before the pandemic started, and we had a great response. I think over 20 people responded with a variety of ideas about places and stories that could pull this conversation, but still rooted in a lot of the same sort of familiar concepts. But it demonstrates, I think, the ways in which psychedelics animated different existing movements in other places. And I think to me, it's sort of like discovering those invisible voices of women, other things that were going on that might not have had the same amount of attention, but are necessarily important as we think about a psychedelic future. And I'll give you a couple of examples. We do have, I think, 21 chapters now, by the way, and it will be coming out this fall with MIT Press. It's going to call, be called Expanding Mindscapes. We've got really fascinating chapters about things like ergot production in Switzerland, which led to the discovery and synthesis of LSD and the ways in which the pharmaceutical industry was taking advantage of particular circumstances, Germany being bombed out, also moving fields around. And so this is part of an agriculture history that is changing the way food sources were being repurposed for pharmaceutical production, which is a story about LSD that's a bit of a cautionary tale also about the relationship between between deprioritizing food over pharmaceutical production. And it's part of a larger story about the shift to pharmaceuticals in the 20th century. There are other stories about psychedelics in Israel. What happens in a space that has become deeply politicized in a particular flashpoint in global history? And we think about what constitutes counterculture in a newly formed Israeli state. How does counterculture work in a dictatorship in Rio de Janeiro? How do you protest the state in a space where, you know, protesting against the state has different kinds of repercussions than just going to hang out at Haight-Ashbury and listening to the Grateful Dead? How do you smuggle in and how does that blend with Afro-Brazilian music that has its own history and is reifying their own kinds of social justice movements in a state that is also quite repressive at that time? So trying to follow these different ways that even American concepts of counterculture ricochet through different landscapes and different sort of religious and political spaces and amplify something that I think is quite universal and even tangible, the expression of music and culture that is pulsing through these places, but also has a local twist to it that I think also is quite optimistic. It's quite inspirational when we think about different ways that like Goa becomes a space, a refuge for another kind of psychedelic space in India. There are fascinating contributions. I did not write them. I merely had the pleasure of working with really talented, incredible authors who we had contributions in, I think, seven different languages. We hired translators to try to bring some of those stories forward so that we can really appreciate this set of stories that are connected to a larger story that may be familiar to more people, but really play out differently across the world. Oh, fascinating. I cannot wait to read that book. That's going to be a major contribution to really expanding our appreciation, I think, for the global role of psychedelics. And I know it's very easy for those of us that live here in Canada and the United States to be a bit myopic about where the psychedelic renaissance was birthed and how it's evolving. I know we definitely play a role in that, but how appropriate that you're able to really expand that spotlight and shine a light on these other people in these other places that I'm sure have contributed in equally beneficial ways. So thank you very much for doing that. I've also heard 
heard you say something that I think is brilliant. And Erica, perhaps you should register this phrase or trademark it because I think it's going to get ripped off. But I've heard you say that we are at risk of taking the magic out of the mushrooms. So what are your concerns about the ways in which the psychedelic renaissance is evolving and in which ways are you hopeful for how things are going? Yeah, thank you. I mean, I think I initially said that phrase when I was being asked about the current state of regulation. And, you know, we've got examples in Canada of different jurisdictions that are looking for ways of regulating psychedelics to get them into the hands of patients who need them. Right now, we're looking at a medical model primarily in Canada. And there are other examples in the United States. There are a variety of jurisdictions we've seen at the municipal level, we've seen at the state level. And there are also lobby groups who are also promoting things. So veterans, for example, at kind of a federal level, looking at different ways that we might imagine psychedelics being integrated into current regulations. Largely, I think the medical marketplace is the space in which this is being discussed at the highest levels. There are exceptions. The Native American church is looking at access to peyote and continued access to peyote, which they've had for some time through religious means. And Oregon and others, San Francisco, I think Oakland, some jurisdictions are looking at decriminalizing nature. So that's a a decrim nature movement that is not expressly tied to the medical market. But Health Canada is really overseeing this as a medical model. What I think we can see from the history of psychedelics is that these are potentially very important medicines or therapeutic options, but that there's so much more involved in thinking about what psychedelics represent. Not just thinking with them as in taking them, but thinking with them like, how do you measure experience in a randomized controlled trial when you're thinking about psychedelics? And maybe they don't fit. Maybe that causes us to rethink the methods by which we assess risk when it comes to pharmaceutical integration. Another example, psychedelics, plant medicines have deep indigenous connections. The way we think about the relationship between plant medicines or sacred plants and indigenous cosmologies also is not exclusively medicalized. There are elements of spirituality of cosmology, of knowledge keeping, and even linguistics that are embedded in indigenous ways of knowing sacred plants that might cause us to think slightly differently or maybe largely differently about the relationship between sort of the plant world and our bodies or plants and medicine, if you will. If we were open to the possibility of rethinking some of the ways that we've set up our healthcare system, our medical regulations, there may be some real benefits and real positives there. And I worry that by making mushrooms into another pharmaceutical option, that might be where the magic being the sort of kernel of inspiration, I think, that comes from thinking with psychedelics as a larger way of imagining how we've organized our medical system, our spiritual system, how we've divided those, how our political systems work vis-a-vis indigenization or indigenous knowledge keeping. I think being open to the possibility of rethinking large ways that we've organized knowledge and evidence, that's where the magic is. Really, really interesting points. I couldn't agree more. One last question. If we look down the road, like five to 10 years into the future, I know no one has a crystal ball, but what would be your hope for women that are involved in the psychedelic space? I think a lot is going to depend on what happens to psychedelics. There's a real sense right now, certainly in Canada, the United States, perhaps in a few other jurisdictions, that psychedelics are going to become graspable. There will be a legal window and it may be a large one or maybe a door if I borrow Aldous Huxley's phrasing of the doors of perception. I don't think they're cannabis. I don't think we're going to see them move in the same way that cannabis did, but it's possible. I think the repercussions for women are twofold. One, in a positive way, is to recognize the ways in which feminine energy participates in kind of integrating psychedelics in a sustainable way. That's a really positive move, and I'd like to see that highlighted. 
But I think there's also a risk. And I think the negative side is we recognize that psychedelics are also not free from abusive contexts. And in fact, a lot of those abusive contexts have been reinforced of late with the fear factor of what happens when psychedelics go off the rails or what happens when people take psychedelics and they're still not legal. And the emphasis of abuse often falls disproportionately onto women. And so I think somewhere in between these two poles, there has to be recognition of both the power that women have to create safe spaces and the need that women have to be able to exist in safe spaces. And with psychedelics continuing to be criminalized, those safe spaces are even less safe when it comes to being able to talk about those abuses, to share with them, to open up these spaces because everything is shrouded in the cloak of criminality. And so I hope that somewhere we can sort of move past those two poles and begin to think about sustainable solutions that actually have gender at the center or at the core of our efforts to move psychedelics forward. Love it. That's a vision I think everybody wants to get behind, men and women. So thank you for sharing that. Well, you are a walking encyclopedia of knowledge when it comes to the history of psychedelics. And obviously with the work you're doing now, that's just evolving constantly. For people that want to follow you and learn more about your work, where can they find you? Do you have a LinkedIn profile? Where can we send them here to learn more about what you're up to? Yeah, I'm on LinkedIn. I'm currently on Twitter, so long as there's a Twitter and also easily Googleable. And at the University of Saskatchewan, this is where my office is. <laughs> and your books, how will people find those? Will they be published online? How can they get a copy of Women in Psychedelics and then the Global History of Psychedelics? Both very, very fascinating reads. The Women in Psychedelics is coming out with Synergetic Press. It'll be out this fall. I believe you can purchase it on Amazon. I haven't yet seen the final copy. And the same thing is true with Expanding Mindscapes, A Global History of Psychedelics. It is co-edited by myself and Chris Alcock, and it should be available through MIT Press and on Amazon as soon as this fall. We will check it out. I'll make sure those links are right next to the podcast episode here. And I just want to mention too, for those that want to get access to your work even sooner, there's a very robust list of your published works on your website, articles that you've written and other books that you've published. So be sure to check those out as well. Fascinating work. Thank you so much, Erica, for being here today and sharing your insights. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Tanya. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Celebrating Women in Psychedelics podcast. If you like the episode, please hit subscribe and rate us on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcast. We also have a free online community where you can meet and network with the guests of the podcast, as well as other women involved in psychedelics from around the world. To find out more, go to celebratingwomenpodcast.com or follow us on Instagram or LinkedIn. Thanks so much and see you next time.